everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the UCC Career Services podcast. Today, we are going to do another deep dive, and we're going to look at the whole area of the Irish Prison Service and the Cork Alliance Service. We know that there's great interest among so many of our cohorts in working in this area, and today we are delighted to be joined by Emma Regan, Head of Psychological Services, the Irish Prison Service, Sheila Connolly, CEO of Cork Alliance Service, and Edel Cunningham, Head Teacher at Cork Prison ETB. Ladies, thank you so much for joining us. We're delighted to have you here. Thank you very much. Thanks for having us. There's a perception out there that it's a very challenging area to work in, but I imagine that it's a hugely satisfying area too. So I'd love to do a little bit of a round table and find out more about your area of, of work. So um, Emma Regan, we, we'll start with yourself. So my role is as head of psychological services, as you said, and at the moment we have eight senior psychologists, 13 staff grade psychologists and 13 assistant psychologists across the estate. Now we have a couple of vacancies as well and we're looking to constantly build on that. Each closed prison has a psychology service and we provide a dual role in prisons. Firstly, we work in terms of people's mental health. So anything um, related to their anxiety, depression, eating disorders, developmental disorders. So doing assessments of um, autism, intellectual disability, working with people who have head injuries, people who have dementia, which I think actually not a lot of people would, would think that there are people who are at that stage of their life in prison. But actually we do and, and we work in that area, too. So so that's one area of our work. We also work closely with healthcare and psychiatry with people who have a psychosis, a diagnosis of schizophrenia, people with bipolar disorder. So that's one side of the role. The other side of the role is in relation to working with criminogenic need. So that's working on the offence. What brought people to committing an offence and into prison? Completing risk assessments with people and then writing parole board reports for people who are serving life sentences and making recommendations in terms of their sentence management and providing support to the parole board around their decision making. That's our dual role within the prison service at the moment. In addition to that, then, we have a slightly separate organisational role, and that's working to train recruit prison officers and current prison officers in areas around trauma, mental health, challenging behaviour, developmental disabilities, uh, and I suppose how to be resilient within a challenging work environment. So supporting prison officer well-being and resilience. We're on quite a lot of working groups and provide advice to the department and to the Irish Prison Service in relation to how to how a prison service can become more trauma-informed and more psychologically informed. Oh, Emma, and it's, it's quite diverse, isn't it, I suppose, if you, as opposed to if you were going through a direct stream of being a psychologist, it's quite vast. It is. And in different prison services internationally, they have different psychologists for different pieces of the work. So if you take the UK, for example, NHS psychologists come in and provide the mental health work. And then other psychologists who work in HMPPS provide all the, the offence focused work. When I talk to my colleagues, my counterparts in different countries, they would say that the issue with that is you can't really divide people in terms of their mental health and then their criminogenic need because there's so much crossover. And then having one psychologist work on one area and another psychologist work on another area means that there isn't sufficient crossover and it's not seeing people as as whole people where all of the difficulties that they have are integrated and and all tell a story in terms of how they ended up in prison. So they would say they'd love to take a U-turn and go back and work the way we do more holistically with people where you've got one person with a really, really comprehensive understanding of the person that they're working with, both in terms of their, their mental health, maybe personality disorder and their risk. Yeah, thank you for that background. And I think that's a fantastic overview for anyone who's to be considering a career in this area and, and to move over to, your, to yourself Sheila I suppose the Cork Alliance service they would very much I suppose work then with people who are released from prison and living in the Cork area could you give me a bit more background about what, what you do? Yes so we work with anybody that's released from prison it's their choice it's voluntary engagement with, with our project and we can work with people for as long and as short a period of time as they actually want or need the only criteria is that you have been to prison. So with that is we would work with a lot of people would say that Emma and you work with and then people that haven't been able to access psychology services and they're on the outside as well, because an awful lot of people 
in prison have mental health issues at various degrees and across the board. Um, so that's one area that, that we continue on the work with our own psychotherapists that the psychology team will begin with in, in prison. And then some of the psychologists then will come and visit in our office and continue that work with some of their people on the, in the community as well, if it's possible. So we work with anybody coming out of prison who wants support in any aspects of their life. So that can be around, obviously, the core piece is that offending piece of the reason that's brought them into prison is kind of our overarching piece, but not necessarily the day to day with some people as they progress. So very often it's around addiction, it's around mental health, it's around education, employment, training, how you actually are in life, because very often if people are transitioning from a life of crime, from a life of addiction into another life, it's difficult to picture what that life actually is and how that exists. So we're there to help people and support people do that, help them and support them transition with their children and how they become the person they are. So that takes quite a lot of diverse work from, from our from our team. So our team are what we term support, support workers, which are very different to the therapists who we also would say contract in on an hourly basis, depending on what the needs of our clients are. And then we work in partnership then with the other agencies across the city and across the county to to actually work with say around their housing issues or in relation to their education and supporting people to stay in those roads. So our, I suppose our mandate is to do whatever it needs to be done rather than it actually just being defined by a, a small list is what whatever whatever needs, whatever help people need, we're, we're there to, if we can't provide it, to help find a route by which we can do that. And it's fantastic to hear that there's that level of support. You know, I, I was just listening to a webinar this week from um, Sylvia, who I, I believe she she was she was talking about how it's it's so difficult for people to adapt to come back out where down to the point where they had difficulty opening doors. You know, yep. I thought that was that blew me away, to be quite honest. And even Emma, when you discussed there that, you know, you there would be people who would need support with, with dementia, that there's a massive amount of support needed when they do come out. So, Sheila, it's wonderful to hear that there are supports in place. Yeah. And I, I think one of the interesting, just when you mentioned even the opening doors, the other side of that is also that is that prison can provide people with a, a, a very good structure, routine, a safety. You know what meal you're getting, you know, when you're with, you've got a bed for the night, you know that you've got your medical needs, you know, within easy access. And when you come out and have to physically go there, find those places, deal with the bureaucracy of all that, that can be very trauma triggering. It can be when you've got low coping mechanisms, it can be difficult to address it. So our, I suppose our role is very much to help people co-regulate till they regulate and help them walk that walk and and manage themselves in all in all of those environments as they move on in their life. Thanks for that, Sheila. Thanks for that overview. And Andy Dell, to come over to yourself, um, head teacher with the Cork Prison um, ETB. Could you tell us a little bit more about what you do? Uh, absolutely. We'd be glad to. And just, you know, to echo what Sheila was saying, one of our students that I'd have worked with for quite a long time, I remember him talking about he'd been in and out of prison for quite a while. But after a significant sentence, he described how difficult he found it crossing the Wilton roundabout and just in the kind of in, in Cork City because he said he'd been in prison for so long and then all these different lights, traffic, different lanes, pedestrians. You, you know, it's very challenging. The, the world outside moves on, yet their every need is catered for in, inside the prisons. There's a lot of adjusting to, to, to cope with and oftentimes the easiest option can be avoiding all that and very quickly some of them can turn back to, to drugs and alcohol. However, my role, I'm employed by Cork ETB. I'm responsible for delivering education in the what we call the education unit, which is the school in Cork prison. I would have what we call a whole time equivalent of 22 teachers. Now that breaks down between full time and part time. I would also have responsibility for a project that's run in the community, community education project called the Dillon's Cross Project. And that works with the female relatives of guys who are in prison. We would offer exactly what's offered in mainstream schools in terms of assessment, like in i.e. we do offer Leaving Cert. We also offer QQI, we offer Open University, but probably our focus would be more on QQI, it's more modular than on the state exams method. It kind of, it suits the, I suppose, the in and out of the lads, it kind of takes um, recognition of their prior educational experience. So in order to do Open University, our students have to do two subjects at Leaving Cert level. And it, it, it amazes me often how able our students are, but how little they believe in their own ability. Now, the vast majority of our students have come from areas of social disadvantage. A lot of their family backgrounds can be chaotic. 
And then on top of that, their experience of the education system can be very negative. And I always maintain, they say one good adult, one good teacher, but for a lot of these, that hasn't happened. So I think for a lot of them, their first positive experience of education, I've heard this over and over again, would have been within the education units in Irish prisons, which I think is a really, really sad reflection on the education that we have in Ireland. It suits those that are academic, but it doesn't cater for the huge array of talents that our students have. That can be anything from art to ceramics to poetry to creative writing to music. The list is endless, but that really isn't how we measure success in our education system. And unfortunately, a lot of our guys, I mean, I can name guys, which I obviously won't do, who have severe mental health difficulties, but who are as bright and able as capable of any students on the outside. One of these students, kind of coming from a very difficult background, would have sat for four Leaving Cert subjects a number of years ago. And it's really difficult to study for a Leaving Cert in a prison environment because you don't have the support of your families. You don't have the same setup you have with a classroom around you. And for this guy to do that, it was a huge achievement. But unfortunately, mental health now, mental health issues, he's not doing very well. But, you know, it's a totally different environment from, from students who have gone to a mainstream, who have two parents at home, who have two parents that will provide grinds, who meet their every need. A lot of our students have never had that support from a very young age they haven't had the parents at home to do the reading and writing and for a lot of our students I think the pathway has been set by the time they've reached the age of two and three so unless the foundations are in place at that stage the building blocks have no foundation to be put on and that's where I think projects like the Dylan's Cross project are so important you're working with the whole family somebody doesn't end up in prison just because of Obviously, there's the exception. Things can go wrong for anybody. You know, they can be drink driving, car crashes, whatever. But the vast majority of ours will have come from areas where the whole family is struggling. So if you can work with a partner, with a mom, with a sister, and I've seen this, that we've had students in Dylan's Cross who've gone on to succeed from getting work, going on to education. Their brothers then who might be in prison decide, well, if my sister is doing it, perhaps I can do it. But for that girl who has come from a family that oftentimes has been mired in the prison system, she has broken the mould and for her kids the pathway is different. The ETB, our motto is a pathway for every learner. I really don't care whether it's academia, whether it's art, and I often think the arts and the ceramics and the practical subjects are so important in the prison because if somebody is struggling with mental health it takes them out of that kind of that strife and even if it's learning to socialize again in a classroom and if it's putting matchsticks on a piece of card, if it's making art, if it's doing ceramics, it's helping, I suppose, to deal to a certain extent with the trauma. And oftentimes I think art, ceramics have a huge role to play in that. Thanks so much for that overview, Edel, because I think that's something that a lot of our listeners probably wouldn't realise, that even when you say that it, it is a very sad reflection on the Irish education system, just how many people do get left behind. And it's just wonderful that there's an opportunity for them to get that education. And I agree on the art, the ceramics, even someone I know myself who who um, was in the prison system, the pride when he came out and he, he turned a wooden bowl for us and the pride that he had in that. Would you see that the, the prisoners who that you would work with, do you see that they come up with that bit more confidence on the other end? Absolutely. And I think, I mean, with, with the whole ceramics, I have seen the effect it has for guys who have suffered loss from just being able to make a grave book to recognise or to acknowledge, you know, that they have lost a loved one. For them to be able to inscribe it with the words of love, they might never have been able to do that before. But equally, I've seen guys produce amazing pieces of woodwork, of art, of ceramics. And when I would compliment them on these pieces of work, they're kind of, they're taken aback. I, they have so rarely received that kind of positive feedback. And again, I think that's something I would work really hard with in, in the prison that we constantly try and, you know, that it's genuine, that we're not just saying this without having a reason for saying it. But when the lads do well, it needs to be acknowledged. It needs to be named. We have a number of courses running with uh, MTU or UCC. And just before the pandemic, one of our students who struggled with reading and writing and is still learning, still working his spellings, he got a certificate of excellence from doing a course with UCC, which like it would be kind of life life changing for him. Now he actually does appreciate the fact that there is no reason why he cannot partake in classes at that level. Yes, he needs to go back and work on all the other bits and pieces, but he has the same ability to partake in these. We have a project called Inside Out, where we had eight students from UCC sat in a classroom with eight of our own students, and our students were every bit as well able to contribute to the discussions as the students. It was a great learning from both sides. So yes, I answer your question, there's great pride 
for our students when they actually succeed. And I really think it's important that we, we work hard to, to acknowledge it and to, I suppose, to celebrate those successes. Oh, definitely, I agree. You know, even in the workplace, just being told you did a great job there. But for someone that I suppose would have seen that as unattainable, that's an incredible step forward. Idel, thanks so much for for that background really appreciate it and I suppose I'd love to hear more about another little round table and hear about how you came to these roles you know and what inspired you so Emma I, I might come back to you on that I never imagined that I would end up in prisons and and feel as passionate about it as I, as I do now you know I'm from rural Sligo growing up I never knew anybody who had been in prison it just simply wasn't part of my world I grew up on a farm uh, and it was a very quiet life and really you know in fairness quite idyllic but going to university, I went to university in Derry for my first degree. And it was through my part-time jobs that I was working in to put myself through college that I came face-to-face with the experience of people going into custody and the impact of it on their families and watching their families in the aftermath of loved ones going to custody. And it was the first time I'd ever experienced it, knowing somebody going to custody, seeing the aftermath of it. And like it completely, it astounded me. It really did. And I remember at the time being at the cusp that all people who have done a psychology degree are and they're, what am I going to do now? Am I going to go to HR, occupational psychology? You know, where am I going to go? And I started to read about this notion of psychology in prisons. I then, because a cheeky 20 year old does this, contacted the Department of Justice in in Ireland, in Dublin and asked, how do you become a prison psychologist? And in fairness to them, they contacted the governor of Castlery Prison and said, is there any chance you'd let this woman in just to have a look around? And I went and I met the governor and I had a, a look around and organised that I would shadow the probation officer for a while. And as I was shadowing the probation officer, I got in contact with the education unit and the head teacher in the education unit in Castlery Prison gave me a job as a... a as a um, substitute teacher for a year, which I did. And I, I taught every possible course that A, somebody else didn't want to, to do or uh, or anything I was offered. I just said, absolutely, I'll do that. And it was, was a year of learning. And the thing that shocked me at the time was walking through the prison every day up to the education unit. There was a door that said psychologist's office, but there was no psychologist. And I think there wasn't a psychologist full time in that prison for another 14 years after that and I, I I mean in the education unit the teachers ended up supporting people in terms of their mental health and that's not appropriate I mean absolutely everybody has a role in prisons in terms of supporting people in their mental health but there should have been the professionals there to do the work that was required and there really wasn't at the time I you know I remember meeting people who were now I know actively psychotic and, you know, the support wasn't there. There were people who had never, ever spoken about the offence they'd committed with a psychologist. And then they were going to leave prison having not done that. So I really just thought that was, well, unacceptable at the time. So I decided I was going to train as a psychologist. And if I could do anything to impact in terms of the number of psychologists in the Irish prison service in years to come, I would do that. So I headed off. And I did my master's in the UK, in Canterbury, in forensic psychology. I then decided rather than going on to be a forensic psychologist that I train as a clinical psychologist and specialise. And that's exactly what I did. I trained in Guildford as a clinical psychologist, worked for a couple of years in London in forensic psychiatric units. So the units where people who were too unwell to be in prison would 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 come to for treatment and then a job came up in the Midlands prison in Ireland and I was at that stage in the UK where I thought if I don't go home now I'm going to be here for another 20 years so I took the job and I just think if if needs be and you want to come home take the demotion you know it'll it'll work out in the end and I worked in the Midlands prison where I am actually today and the the work is fantastic the people are fantastic the the, the clinical work is amazing and the staff are lovely to work with and and that was my route I, I came back as a staff grade to the Midlands prison and I worked my way up and now I'm the, the head of the service so and, and really really proud of that. Emma you really should be that's such an inspiring story and I think something to pull out from that is your bravery and your gumption really that at the age of 20 you were the one who went out to seek those opportunities. 
Well, I would say that the prison officers in Castlereagh said I would probably had a little bit too much gumption and certainly pushed the boundaries there that maybe they weren't that comfortable with. But, I, you know, I learned a lot in Castlereagh prison in terms of the do's and don'ts of prison. Going in into a prison, it's a completely different environment. And, you know, there are do's and don'ts that somebody as naive as me at the time just didn't understand. But but I learned and I learned quickly. But, yeah, there was there was definitely a fire in my belly at the time having experienced the the lack of services in Castlereagh prison and it's always been a bugbear of mine that there were psychologists but guess what they were in the urban prisons they weren't in the rural prisons and being from Sligo that definitely um has impacted um and influenced the 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 balanced regional approach that I'm trying to develop across the service which is that every doesn't matter what county you're born in if you come to prison you'll get the same service in that prison um, you don't have to be born in Dublin, you know, or Cork or Limerick to get a decent psychology service in, in you know, if you do end up um, having to come to prison. I think there's a great lesson there is act on your passion and act on, I, I think you're very within your rights to have that gumption. You know, I think it was fantastic to, to have broken through that and that's, that's so inspiring. And and Sheila, to come, come to yourself, could you tell us a little bit about your own story and how you became the CEO of the Cork Alliance Service? Well, I actually became the CEO of the Cork Alliance Centres 19 years ago yesterday. So, Congratulations. <laughs> it, star- it started 19 years ago. So um, it's a long time. And I don't think I ever thought at the time I'd still be here 19 years later. But if I, if I won the lot in the morning, I'd still be in work the next day. I absolutely love it. Eat, sleep and drink it. I'm definitely the, the person with the meanders in her career path. I would have left school at 16 but with a leaving cert and a very, very young 16-year-old in my head at that stage and with no clue as to where I was going. And at that stage, anybody who had no clue did business because it was just something to do. <laughs> so I did business with the idea of marketing and there was no no employment in marketing. So I went, right, OK, I've still got business. I'll do accountancy. Maybe I'll get some sort of a career still no clue where I was going but um, in the early 90s I was I was fortunate to be one of the few people who left college that year with a job so I worked as a management accountant in an IT company for four years when I started work and it was in Dublin in the height of the 90s I thought this was life couldn't get better (laughs) but with that I suppose I always had a very strong interest in the social aspect of pieces when I was 23 I was spent a month in the northeast coast of Brazil at 24, I spent a month in Zambia for a friend's wedding. And if you remember, 94 was when the genocide happened in Rwanda. And that, I suppose, being south of Rwanda at that stage and watching it unfold and understand, you know, having very basic understanding of what was happening, it kind of really triggered that piece in me. If I think something should be done, why don't I think that should applies to me? Why do I think it applies to other people and not what is my own? What's my responsibility in that? So I came back and I looked at what I could do or what I would be able to do or if I would be of use at all. And I joined Concern for what was two years. It ended up as six years and six years in, in predominantly war zones and working in, I suppose, every aspect. And that for me is always the interesting thing because accountants have a wide variety of skill bases. I used to have a picture over my desk that had a three pictures of the exact same pictures of a man with a trilby and a trench coat and a briefcase and it's an accountant preparing to do battle an accountant in battle an accountant having won battle and they're all the exact same and that's very much the picture people have and yet I found when I was working overseas invariably one in five or six people you were meeting was an accountant maybe an accountant in a former life as I define us but you know we have an accountancy background but it means that you have multiple skills and you have systems, thought processes and trainings that you can actually bring in into all walks of life. So, yeah, so I worked in war zones across sometime in Southeast Asia, but predominantly in the Great Lakes region and um, East Africa. So I after six years, I moved back to Ireland and back to, to Cork for the first time from South Sudan and kind of decided I came back into Ireland going, how do I create myself? What do I do? How, you know, who, who, having left Ireland, my boss at the time said, you know, he checked with his friends and that's it. Nobody's ever going to employ it again. You're too much of a loose cannon and it's just not going to be an option. But I came back and tried to work out where would I be or how would I fit, thinking, well, I'd have a business background, I had a community um, background, and what options did that afford me? So I got the opportunity then 
to set up the office of what was the linkage programme in Cork. It was under business in the community. IASIO oversee it now, but it was setting up, it was to work alongside probation to support their service users to get into training and employment. You know, it was a, a new type of role and people weren't sure what direction it was in or how, or how you could do it. But I suppose I was coming out from a community, a trauma-informed, person-centred piece. And then I had the business background and able to marry those two pieces. So I would have set the Cork office up and a year and a half into it, I suppose I was re- very much realising that there's more to it than just the training and employment. That's an aspect of people's lives and as they transition, and but it's not the whole of it. So I got the opportunity then to be involved in the setting up of the Cork Alliance Centre as we are from the very start. So as I say, 19 years ago yesterday, I started. The doors didn't quite open then. That, and that was to look at the, all of the aspects of people's lives and what needed to be done in that. How do we support people in those pieces? And I suppose it was very much driven by the community development aspect of the learnings and the life I had in relation to being led by the people, for the people, nothing about us, without us, concepts of I don't know the answers, but I do know who does. And I do know who actually seeks, who, who's been seeking that and driving and looking for more. So I can turn to them to, to see how we do this and how do we progress it. And I suppose that's an ethos we've always had within our centre is that our people know best. Our people can help us drive this, determine what we do and how we do it. And that, I suppose, is an is a intrinsic component of us and how we work. And I suppose our people very much talk about it's their space, it's their office, it's their, it's their support mechanism. So that's us. That's how we do. I suppose when the other pieces within that, one of the things I would have done post that would have been got a master's in restorative justice and looking at that whole piece of how do we relate? What is the important part of that? How do we understand the harms we do to others, all of our responsibilities in that, and what is actually the solution as we step out of it, rather than the isolation and the ostracization that we do, whether it's putting the child onto the naughty step, sending the child to the head mister, master or mistress, or to whether it's sending them you know, to prison. Are there all alternative ways of doing that, of actually being, having that community and holding that community focus? So that's, I suppose, me and my culture and ethos around pieces. <laughs> Wow, Sheila, I'm, I'm quite blown away, to be honest with you. That's quite the happenstance career path. And I think it, it really highlights as well that, you know, you, you had your subject knowledge, you had your degree, but getting those experiences, you know, in Southeast Asia and, and so on to pull in those new skills. I'm sure that you came out of those experiences with such a wealth of skills and knowledge that you wouldn't probably have acquired as much in the workplace. So I think that's such a huge point that we're, we're constantly, you know, talking to our students and our graduates about, you know, getting your subject knowledge, but being exposed to experiences that will open up your mind, that will expose a whole new world to you. And the skills that you can gather from that can help you to build a really successful career in something that's really meaningful to you. And, and I think as well as that is that if I didn't have those skills coming into this job, I would actually be down a staff member because I would have to employ somebody to do the accounts, to do the systems, to do the IT stuff. That's all in my head to do that, those pieces. So it means we have an extra staff member in our project and, and that project work is done and, and that people have the supports that are needed, that there are skills that you never lose and, you know, will always be applicable. It's incredible, Sheila. Absolutely amazing story and so inspiring. And again, as with Emma, having the gumption so young to go off to Zambia and start getting these experiences. Incredible. Thank you so much for that, Sheila. Annie Dell, to come to yourself, how did you end up where you are and what inspired you? Again, um, a little bit like Sheila, I came out of college, but this time I knew I didn't want to go directly into teaching and spend a lifetime in a school. So I applied to an organisation at the time called APSO and spent two years working in Africa. I then came back from two years working in Africa and I worked in a private fee-paying school in Dublin, a complete and utter contrast to what I'd been working in abroad. And then at the time I was going out with a guy from Cork and I did an interview with Cork ETB and was offered a job in a prison. Long story short, uh, never knew that there was education in prisons, never knew anything about it, but had absolutely no qualms about saying, I'll give it a shot and see how it works out. I had nothing to lose. So that was probably 25 years ago and I loved it then. I loved working for the ETB in Cork. I just think that kind of a pathway for every learner was their thing. Dylan's Cross started shortly after I started there and I loved that I suppose being open to something new and supporting something new and they have done that down through the years 
And then I suppose I was working for a couple of years and the wonder lost hadn't left. So I decided I was going again. But at this stage, I had security because I knew I could take a career break for five years. So I took off again and taught abroad for another five years and came back after five years back into the prison service again, which I was delighted to be able to come back to and slotted straight back in. Things changed and things hadn't changed at all. Kind of a couple of years job sharing and yeah, 25 years, I think, working in the prison service now at this stage and loving it. Fantastic. And Edel, it must have been such a contrast coming from a kind of a private school environment into the, the ETB. And, you know, uh, with that, you probably needed a whole other range of skill sets as well. Yeah. And it's something I would think would be really important for anybody working in the prison service is the whole thing of flexibility. If you go in with a mindset that I teach, for example, Japanese, the most successful teachers are those with the widest range of skills. So, for example, I would have a home ec teacher who teaches music. I have a woodwork teacher who teaches computers and maths. And not alone do they teach it, but they're actually happy to teach it. They enjoy taking it on. I find what works an awful lot with our students is you know, being able to sit around the table and chat and talk to them, develop a relationship with them. They they build up trust in you. And oftentimes it's when you have that trust, they're more inclined to try the academic part. We have another teacher, he's PE, but he also does maths and IT. And it's the willingness to try and take on a different subject. So I suppose a bit like what Emma was saying, she went in without kind of teaching a specific subject, but was willing to take on any of those areas. It's that willingness to, to get down, to get stuck in, to take on, to take new initiatives. That's what makes a successful teacher, in my opinion. And down to the years, the teachers that have been most successful are the ones who are willing. So in, in, again, in, in Cork, because we have the project outside, the wider your range of skills, if I need somebody teaching in Dillon's Cross this year, are you willing and able to go out and teach in Dillon's Cross? And by and large, the teachers I have are just incredible. Yeah, they might never have taught a child care, child development and play module at level four, but they would say, which is, you know, a characteristic of a good teacher. If you're able to teach, sometimes the content is not as important. So absolutely, if you're teaching a subject like French, you need to know French. But if you're a good communicator and you're good at, at developing a relationship with somebody, being an English teacher versus being a creative writer teacher, being a drama teacher, they all work very well together. And if you have an interest and a passion, our home ec teacher wasn't a music teacher. She had the qualification to teach music, but yet she has a passion for music herself. And the band, if you ever heard them playing in Cork, are absolutely superb because it's her passion that drives them. And she's not happy with mediocrity. I'm always of the opinion, like these guys, the bar should never be set. There's no ceiling to what they can achieve. So I'm always adamant. Let's not accept kind of mediocre. Let's say that that is absolutely fantastic. Now, where are we going next? So no matter what they're at, just encouraging them and supporting them and moving them on, whether it's the lads on the inside or the girls on the outside. If they do level three QQI, I'd say let's do level four. If they do their leaving set in the prison, I'd say, well, would you not consider now doing open university? Would you not consider going on to a further education college? I really believe in, in their capacity with the support and the help I think that they can achieve. And that's also what I want of my staff, that we're constantly looking at ways to support our learners on whatever the pathway that they're on. If it's music, are there outside organisations? And yes, we have a lot of gaps. So what we do in the education unit is really, really good. But oftentimes it's the supporting, it's working with Sheila to get them out into the community on the outside. They don't have the confidence to walk into a classroom of 20 or 30 students in a further education college. But maybe if we were there in the background supporting them, they might be more inclined to do it. Maybe if we had more connections built with the teachers in the FE colleges, maybe if the if the principals of the FE colleges came in to speak to our students, they would then recognise that principal and they would have heard that principal saying directly to them, you are very welcome to come to St. John's, the College of Com, whatever it is. That puts a different, a different slant on it. The other thing I always emphasise is that when they have success, I mean, I've talked about this before, but we'd have had the president from UCC, the president of then CIT came into the college. Each of those students were able to shake the hand before COVID of the president. So they got a photograph on their own. They got a copy of it and they also got a copy to send out to their families. So it was changing the narrative for the kids. Now, instead of my father being in prison, when well, my father did a course with UCC or my father did courses with CIT. And that just changed the mindset from a very young age. So that's all part of what I would look for in a teacher or what, you know, I think makes a good teacher. 
And I think it's a role where, you know, you need that higher degree of probably emotional intelligence, you know, that you can connect with people. And that must be such a hugely satisfying experience. And for a teacher to, to see your students then having had that support to go in and, sh- as you say, shake the hand of the presidents of universities in Cork, you know, it's such, such a satisfying career, I'd imagine. And it's great credit to the further education colleges, to RETB, to UCC, to MTU, that they are very, very aware that they want to to engage with students from outside the mainstream. And they make this point over and over again, you know, trying to attract students from the most disadvantaged, the more difficult to reach groups. And again, we've had nothing but support from them. But yes, to answer your question, it's hugely satisfying. And I keep saying to teachers, you have the ability to change lives, not just the life of the student, but the lives of their families also, which I think maybe people don't quite appreciate in mainstream, slightly different, but definitely in prison education and like adult education. It, it is it you have a you have a huge um potential to change things for the better thank you for that Edel. it's so passionate it's lovely to lovely to hear i think it'll be very inspiring for our listeners and just to follow up on what Edel was saying about the flexibility thing and just to make the point that the prison service has 220 whole-time equivalent teachers across the estate and there's no doubt what Edel was saying is that that relationship that education staff have with people in custody it is life-changing I mean, you know I've heard it day in day out with people that I would have worked with but the other thing about flexibility I just wanted to make the point about is that although I'm constantly saying that prison is just another environment for clinicians psychologists to work in it's just another healthcare environment which it is on the one hand there's also the requirement for flexibility because you are working in what is predominantly a security environment and therefore there are constantly challenges to working with in terms of trying to get access in terms of landings being closed down because there might be a search there are tensions at times and we have to manage that because We are, whilst we're Irish Prison Service staff as psychologists, we still have to work within the remit of what is a custodial environment. And that that does require diplomacy. It requires flexibility, tolerance and really good relationships with um, prison officer staff. So not only do you have to be, you know, a, a really good psychologist because you're working with some of the most complex difficulties in the whole country, but also you need some of those other skills that manage in a complex environment. Yeah, again, Emma, the importance of those soft skills that you pick up from the experiences, not just within your subject knowledge. I think so. That's great to, to hear. Thanks so much for that. And so our final question, and I'd like to pose to you all. What advice would you give a graduate coming out today who would want to end up working within the areas that, that you do? So Emma, I'll, I'll come to yourself. Well, firstly, I would suggest being open minded. And the reason for that is I'd like to just make a little bit of a plug here for the option of becoming a prison officer. So the reason for that is I think whilst psychologists get the opportunity and education staff and and IASIO staff and probation officers get the opportunity to meet with people for a short time each week, there is no doubt that the impact of being a prison officer on people in custody and how life changing you can be is remarkable because as, for example, a class officer where you are working and managing a landing in a prison where you're supporting about 50 odd people, you are the person that they see day to day. How you behave, how you role model, how you speak to people, that's what people in custody learn and the impact of that can be profound. There was a piece of research done by um, DIT with young people and they said, young, young people who were interviewed who were in custody said that the people who influenced them most and who had the most impact on them were not psychologists, were not teachers, were not chaplains, but actually were prison officers. And then there are other options. Of course, there's being a a teacher, there's being a probation officer. We have lay chaplains. We have obviously psychologists. We have care assistants because some people we have in custody need 24-hour physical and health care. We have drug counsellors. And I guess there is an entire multidisciplinary team of people working in prisons. So one, keep your options open in relation to what kind of work. And don't assume that if you've done a psychology degree that you're going to go on to become a psychologist. There's other ways of using those kind of skills, such as becoming a prison officer. If you want to become a psychologist, prison service currently employ clinical and counselling psychologists. We specifically employ clinical and counselling psychologists because they are mental health trained and because we've got that dual role. It's a long road. It took me 11 years to qualify as a psychologist. And the bit that I forgot to mention earlier on was that I did two years as an assistant psychologist as well. And most of the clinical 
training courses now in particular require you to become an assistant psychologist. And sometimes in order to become an assistant psychologist, you have to have some clinical experience prior to that too. So it's a really long route. And in order to get that experience, roll your sleeves up. Don't be afraid to do anything. Become a key worker with the Simon community, with Peter McVeary Trust, whatever it takes to work with people and demonstrate that you've got the capacity to work with people with complex needs. That's what the, the training programs want. Finally, if you want to become a psychologist, what you really need is to remove some of the ego because you will get lifelong developmental feedback. I still get feedback from my bosses where I'm not doing so well. And that might be hard to take, but that's part of the job. If you want to be a good psychologist, you have got to be able to take developmental feedback. And that is something that we're noticing more recently is a struggle for people. And when you're an assistant psychologist and we take on APs, where you're not able to take developmental feedback at that stage, it might be that you need to think about whether this is the right route for you. Because we're um, working clinically with people, we're constantly developing. That's fantastic. Thank you, Emma. So I think overall, be open-minded, knock on those doors. And I think there's a bit to build the resilience, you know, build up your resilience. And in the end, as you say, you will be successful after all that. But, you know, there is an awful lot that you can do to build resilience. And just for our listeners here, just to highlight that, you know, the career services can help you in that and get prepared and understand what resilience is and and how you can build it. Because in any role, it's important, but particularly if this is a stream that you want to go down. Thank you for that. Sheila, same question for yourself. Um, Probably the same answer as Emma as well, (laughs) in that definitely I would agree with her around the the prison officers being a role to consider that myself and James Leonard are involved in in training the the recruit prison officers as well. And as we've been doing that for the last five years at this stage, I suppose it was something that we hadn't thought of at the start, but would be very much encouraging people to do. I'd love to see every prison officer coming in with a social care background because For us, because we're an outside service coming into the prison and we haven't been in the prison since February of last year because of the lockdown, which in fairness is unusual. There's a team of five of us here. And if we have across one week, if if we had four hours contact time in the prison between across the five of us, we'd be doing pretty well. And then you might not see somebody for another three or four weeks. So you have to be very careful about the interventions that you do and and how you do them. But we're very aware that if you want to affect real change, the people who can do that are those that are living on the landings with them, that are there 40 hours of the week, not four hours in a month. With some person, I might get one hour a month with somebody in batches of 15, 30 minutes. So if we want to affect change, those change agents are going to be the consistency, the, the trauma-informed, the insightful, the caring, the unconditional positive regard, all of those pieces are applied and positive role models. But most of our men, when they look back in prison, they're identifying one prison officer that has that has effectively led change in their lives, that has been consistent in their lives and who they want to go back and let them know how they're doing. I think it's a really interesting point around the prison officer role that people would have confined it to one set of thoughts. They've done a huge amount to change it effectively over the last five or six years and the vision for how that rolls and how that role will roll out into the future is taking on more and more of those aspects of the job. Yeah and that's what I was just thinking Sheila is that there's probably a very traditional perception of what being a prisoner officer is that's really aligned with security but I've, I've really learned today that it's so much more that you know when you are coming in with a social background or you know maybe a care background that there's an opportunity for you to be exposed to so much get so much learnings and bring that with you as you wish to develop your career in the prison service. And it's something that if you get into early on, you're going to learn so much. Yeah, yeah. And it, and it, and it will it will have a huge impact. I think one of the interesting things for James and myself when we were doing the prison officer training, it had, and because it escaped me in the previous 15 years of my time in and out of the prisons, was that a lot of prison officers, when they don't see people coming back, they can assume people are dead, as assume that life got, as assume that life got better. And, you know, when, when the prison officers were telling us that piece of it, we were going, but my God, I can tell you all of these people that all of these good things have happened and they've moved on and they've moved away. So we now actively have a part of people that, look, if they want us to bring a message back to a particular prison officer about how well they're doing, then we'll seek to support that to happen. So that so that they, because it is a difficult position when somebody leaves a prison, the prison officers don't see them again. And you don't know what's happening or, or how, how people are doing. 
And for us, sometimes we can play that th that role of, of bringing those messages back. I sent a message to one of the psychologists the other day at the request of one of the, the, the men that, that they, she had worked with to say, look, I'm doing OK. This is going well. And I've applied for your college. You know, so it's, you know, it's, it's understanding that, you know, the, the boundaries of the job, but also understanding the, the impact that you really have on people's lives and that they want to share that information with you. And it's great to hear that there are those links there. It's lovely actually to hear, you know, you're three different areas, but it's so close knit still that, you know, there's there's a huge support there. Apologies, Idel. I was just um, agreeing with Sheila the, uh, and, and Emma, the importance of the, the officers is crucial. And I can really see the benefit. We have a lot of younger officers beginning to kind of filter through at the moment. And, and, and you know, even go back with the older officers. I, one of the guys who is currently doing Open University with us is the only reason he's engaging with us is because one of his class officers said to him, would you not consider going to the school and encourage him to go? And that's often the case. So, yeah, I think it would be really valuable for them to hear how well the lads are doing afterwards, because I would presume unless they bump into them that they that they don't know, they wouldn't know that. Yeah. 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 So, so, so but back to your question, I suppose for us, it, it is the same. It's there's no direct route to be able to do our work. Yes, a lot of the people that apply are going to come at it from a youth and community, a social care background. We have developed the role of, of a support work to be very different to that of a teacher, to that of a psychologist, like that of a psychotherapist. We might have some of those those same basic skills, but but it's a very separate role because you're there for more of the day to day stuff with people to help them identify, you know, what their work is that they might do with with their therapist and how to follow on and how to manage themselves as the, as they journey there. But there's lots of other aspects to life. You don't actually have to have a specific qualification to get work with our, with ourselves it's much more about the person it's much more how you have demonstrable skills no matter what aspect of life you're coming at from that, that how can you demonstrate how you can relate to people what your experiences are how you've managed tra traumatic experiences what your own personal journey has been how you're accountable for yourself what you do if you're transferring some of your own issues onto it what what your you, how you've addressed your own personal stuff because the people we work with have enough issues to deal with that they don't need to be dealing with their support workers' issues getting in the way as well. And that's a, a huge component, building what Emma was saying uh, on having critical feedback in your life. You actually have to take responsibility for yourself and do those personal journeys and, and the, those personal therapies yourself. They're not provided by the organisation. You have, If you want to work in this area, you have to be physically and mentally and emotionally able to work and continue to work in the area. My staff are here for as long as I am. And that's because they are emotionally and mentally well in themselves. Yes, we have group therapeutic uh, counselling supervision, but you have to make sure that you're well to be able to do the work and continue to do the work. And I think that's the important component. It's much more about the person rather than the effectively the formal qualification and how can you apply? What can you do? But yes, back to what Emma was saying, it is the working with, you know, the Cork Simons, the, the Vincent's DePaul, the Peter McVeary Trust, the teaching components, the, you know, the, anything that's person centred, anything that's people skilled, that shows understanding, compassion, unconditional positive regard, being able to stay the course with people, to take your own judgments out of it and to be there to support, to understand and to affect change. And within that, to be able to effectively challenge uh, and constructively do that and not collude you know, with people and, and be able to manage yourself and all of those things are the key components yeah, that we require. That's fantastic advice, Sheila. And I think even coming back to things like getting that experience with the likes of, of you know, Simon and the range of different voluntary organisations and certainly just to flag to our listeners that to, to get involved in initiatives like the UCC Employee Agility Award volunteering stream, where you can approach a volunteering organisation, request that you get some opportunity to work with them and, and come back to us and we will help you then through that programme, learn how to articulate your skills. Um, and as you noted, Sheila, it's important to have that, that piece of personal development kind of ready really when you do want to embark on a, a career like this Brilliant. thank you so much for that and Idel finally what advice would you give for someone who'd want to maybe pursue a career in teaching in this area I suppose number one obviously being able to put in a hard graft to, to work hard at it flexibility then I've mentioned before working as part of a team so not alone are you working within you know, the education unit with the team, but you're also working part of a multidisciplinary team. If the Red Cross, it could be working with the assistant psychology, you could be working with somebody who's addiction issues. You also have to be really, really conscious that, as, as Emma pointed out, 
we are working in a prison environment and we might not always be able to do what we want to do. And it can be incredibly frustrating because you could have worked with somebody for a very long period of time. And depending on what happens from a security point of view, that person could be moved overnight to a different prison. So you could have spent, you know, I would have spent maybe a year and a half preparing somebody for a leaving cert exam. And depending on what's happened overnight, that person could be gone. I come back after a weekend. So you have to be, I suppose that's part of the resilience. You have to be able to say, okay, that's beyond my control. I can query it, but I have to accept the answer that I got. And yes, their education is really, really important. But because they're in a secure environment, that takes precedence over everything else. If a class is cancelled at short notice and you still need to get something finished, you need to be able to adapt what you're doing so the person can still be afforded every opportunity to pass an assessment or to, to get the exam that they need to at the end. And playing the blame game never works. So it's just the ability to to get on with it and make it work. And I think really working as a team, the strength we get from one another and the work that can actually be achieved by working collaboratively, it is just incredible. So, yeah, flexibility, hard work, working as a team, that really would be, I think, a lot of it. Fantastic. Thanks for that, Adele. Adele, that, that's one extra piece on that as well. That I think it's that piece of there, there's lots of ways being lateral in your thinking and understanding it, being, you know, in that collaboration, but being able to understand that there's not just one route to actually solve a problem, you know, be it around access to education, as Adele was saying, if something happened, you know, or if it's, you know, wanting to get somebody, it is for somebody to get into treatment, you know, you have to be able to think around 100 solutions. And when you get to your 99 solution and it's not working, that, that you address your 100th one with as much enthusiasm as you started with your first one. And doggedness and that determination to stay with people and to encourage them, you know, in that process is probably something that all three of us <laughs> apply regularly um, and in bucket loads. But it is, it's, a, it's another fundamental component to be able to, to do this work and do this work consistently over, you know, 20 or 30 years and to um, avoid the burnout. Be, being positive as well, Sheila, is a part. So avoiding the whole negativity. It's very easy to be sucked into this will never work. Let's, let's not even bother trying. That is just so counterproductive. But yeah, if you, if you can't go one way, you go another way. If it doesn't work this year, maybe it'll work next year. You plant the seed, you come back, you water it and you foster it. And, you know, if it's really, really important, it will happen. It just takes a bit of time. So that kind of persistence is important. Thank you so much. I have to say, you know, having spoken to you here now for, for a little while, I've just been blown away by, you know, how resilient you all are, how self-driven, how, again, that word gumption, you know, every single one of you, it's just been an incredible opportunity to have a chat. I think this is going to be so inspiring for our listeners to get a deeper understanding. As I said at the, at the top of this pod, you know, I suppose you sometimes would look at the area of the prison service, thing of security. But there's so much more. It's so much deeper. And I just want to thank the three of you so much for joining us today, giving us a little insight into your world and your roles and your own personal development, which is just incredibly inspiring stories. So thank you so much to Emma Regan, Sheila Connolly and Edel Cunningham.